Chapter 8 Whose Worldview? Two decades ago, fundamentalist Christians began taking their children out of the public schools. Lutherans, Roman Catholics, and Dutch Reformed parents had long maintained parochial, church run schools as essentially immigrant cultural protective institutions. But evangelical Christians had always regarded the public schools as their schools. The Roman Catholics had agreed with them, which is why they had set up parochial schools. In the mid-1960s, a growing number of evangelicals figured out what they should have known from 1830 onward, that the public schools were designed by humanists for the purpose of destroying Christian civilization. Horace Mann had said so openly when he designed them in the 1830s, and by 1965, even a few of the victims had begun to catch on. A new Christian school starts every three days, according to one estimate. They may be small, but so are termites. Eventually the termites win, and the house collapses. That's what's happening to public schools in America. Within the last decade, homeschooling has swept across the country. Over a million families now have their children in some kind of homeschool programme. The public schools have taken heavy losses because droves of the best and the brightest have left. More to the point, the principled and the disciplined have left. Public educators have become outraged. The result? Secular education has tried to stretch the compulsory education laws to force children into their schools. How? The failure of the family. The logic works this way. The state requires children to be educated. The state uses tax money to create educational institutions for these children who are compelled to be educated. The state pays, so the state can legitimately determine what gets taught. Finally, all children are supposed to attend state institutions. If something sounds wrong with this syllogism, good. To help everyone see what's wrong with its logic, let's add the word religious to education. The state requires children to be religiously educated. The state uses tax money to create educational institutions for these children who are compelled to be religiously educated. The state pays, so the state can legitimately determine what religion gets taught. Finally, all children are supposed to attend state religious institutions. What's wrong with this picture? Isn't it true that children need religious education to be good citizens? Of course it's true. We also know that some parents just won't give their children the proper religious instruction. This inevitably assumes the existence of a God-determined definition of proper, but it also requires an institution to enforce it. The question is, which institution? Furthermore, we know that other parents are thoughtless and won't spend the money to buy good religious education for their children. Must we therefore conclude, quote, The state therefore needs to intervene and both compel and pay for such religious instruction, end quote. But the perceptive person will conclude, This makes the state sovereign over the family. That's exactly what it does. The integrity of the family is undermined, and the family is the institution that God has assigned for the religious instruction of children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7.
It is the family which is to determine what proper religious instruction is for its children, for better or worse. A perceptive person will therefore conclude, quote, it's not worth the risk. Don't ever allow the state to compromise the family to this extent, no matter how many parents aren't giving proper religious instruction to their children, end quote. In short, hands off. The SEALs job. State education propagandists have told us that some parents will inevitably fail to teach their children the basics of non-religious, so-called, education. They are arguing that state compulsion is the necessary motivator, for so many parents will otherwise fail to act responsibly that the state is forced to create a compulsory school system. Let me ask you a question. How could anyone sell this idea to a nation of illiterates? How could state education promoters get taxpayers to finance the schools if the taxpayers didn't believe in paying for education? It's ridiculous. The only voters who would accept such an argument have already decided in favour of educating their children. To get a majority behind such a programme of compulsory state education, you would first have to find voters who already overwhelmingly were literate and who were interested in educating their children. In short, the humanists made this appeal to people who had not abandoned their family responsibilities to educate their children. Violating sphere sovereignty. The problem in both examples of state-financed education, religious education or day school education, is that the state wants to set the standard for everything beginning with compulsory education. If state compulsory religious education is wrong, then state compulsory day school education is equally wrong. If the state shouldn't get involved in educating children religiously because this is exclusively a family responsibility, then it must also be prohibited from getting involved in day school or college or university education. The principle of family authority and family responsibility must be maintained. There is one legitimate exception to this prohibition, the nation's military academies. The state is buying future officers. It could probably buy them cheaper by hiring private firms owned by retired officers to perform this training, but that's a political military decision. Once, however, that state compulsory education of any kind is conceded by the Christian, he is trapped. The Christian is already operating by the state's standard. Sadly, arguments in Christian circles concerning education usually begin with the assumption that the state can compel. But if this assumption is abandoned, then the state is taken out of the business of education. Its standard is completely removed. Why? Whoever writes the, quote, compulsory education, unquote, laws will inevitably have to define education. State officials are just about always going to define education in terms of state needs for education. The only exception would be if the state officials are Christians. If they are, then there would be no need for the state to define anything because they would push it out of the education business. The state simply has no biblical justification for compelling people to be educated. Tyranny is worse than education. 
and people educated under tyranny still have a slave mentality. mentality. So, if the state sets the standard, then private education is destroyed. The question of, quote, who owns education, unquote, has already been answered. And the humanist answer is the state. Court case. In Ohio v. Wisner, 1976, the state has ruled that minimum, quote, standards are so pervasive and all-encompassing that total compliance with each and every standard by a non-public school would effectively eradicate the difference between public and non-public education and thereby deprive these appellants of their traditional interest as parents to direct the upbringing and education of their children, end quote. In another place, this same ruling also said, quote, The real question here is not what is the best religion, but how shall this best religion be secured? I answer, it can best be secured by adopting the doctrine of the seventh section of our own Bill of Rights, and which I summarise in two words by calling it the doctrine of hands off. Let the state not only keep its own hands off, but let it also see to it that religious sects keep their hands off each other. This is the golden truth which it has taken the world 18 centuries to learn, and which has, at last, solved the terrible enigma of, quote, church and state. Among the many forms of stating this truth as a principle of government, to my mind, it is nowhere more fairly and beautifully sent forth than in our own constitution. Were it in my power, I would not alter a syllable of the form in which it is there put down. It is the true republican doctrine. It is simple and easily understood. It means a free conflict of opinions as to things divine, and it means masterly inactivity on the part of the state, except for the purpose of keeping the conflict free and preventing the violation of private rights or of the public peace." End quote. Let's consider something else. Education is not the primary issue. Dominion is the real point of tension. If Christians are allowed to educate their children the way God commands, then they will dominate society. Let's get this clear from the beginning. Christianity is invincible, superior to every other system of religion. Allowed to run its course, nothing can stop it. Why do you think secular educators desperately want control of Christian children? Why do you think the state runs all the schools in communist countries? It's a matter of indoctrinating the children of the state's enemies with a foreign world and life view. A world and life view is a grid through which everything is understood. The power to form a young person's worldview is the heart of education. This has been understood since John Dewey, one of the founders of public education, first signed and advocated the Humanist Manifesto. It's time Christians learned this as well. The bottom line of education. The bottom line of education is the answer to this question. Whose world and life view? Christian parents are fighting an environment that imports a competing worldview called humanism. Humanists understand this point. They know if they can take children away from their Christian family upbringing, the Christian worldview can be undermined. The past 100 years of education proves the point. The best book on this subject, a study of the 25 major pioneers of, quote, progressive education, unquote, is R.J. Rushdoony's The Messianic Character 
of American Education, published as far back as 1963. It has now become the Bible of the Defenders of the Christian Day School. Christian education, whether home or school, keeps the child in a moral environment that reinforces the complete Christian perspective. No matter how defective, the children still hears a more consistent Christian worldview. Some people think it is better for Christians to be exposed to a humanistic worldview at an early age. I know a man who bought this bill of goods. He took his 10-year-old son out of a Christian school and put him into the local public school. The English teacher assigned a theme. The students were supposed to write on a contemporary rock star, the list having been furnished by the teacher. The young man knew enough to perceive that his selection was limited to pagans. He asked the teacher if he could use a contemporary Christian singer. The teacher said, No, because you need to broaden yourself. The boy responded, But I've never even heard some of these musicians. The teacher smiled and took the opportunity to say, Well, you'll just have to listen to them and write about what you hear. Why was the teacher so inflexible? She wanted to shatter the boy's traditional world and life view at age 11. Don't think public educators fail to understand this. That's why they're fighting so hard to stop Christians from sending their children through Christian education. It's only Christians who fail to understand this. Christians who are looking for a way to justify their tuition-saving decision to place their children in a totally hostile religious and moral environment. After all, it leaves extra money for important things like a new stereo system or a vacation. Moses states clearly whose worldview is to be taught. Quote, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. End quote. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 to 9. God has entrusted the parents with the responsibility of educating their children. The reason is that he wants his people to grow under a thoroughgoing biblical world and life view. Here is the most important principle in education. Covenantal worldview. We need to provide our children with a Christian worldview in their education. But what is it? Remember the covenant model I presented in the first chapter and have been following in this book? This gives us the heart of a Christian viewpoint. The third point of the covenant is ethics or law. The law sets an ethical framework for learning. Since the heart of the covenant is law, let's use the whole covenant structure to provide this ethical approach to a Christian world and life view. I can call it a covenantal worldview. To refresh our memory, I said there are five parts to the covenant. 
1. Transcendence. God is Lord, standing above as the author and controller of creation. 2. Hierarchy. Authority. 3. Ethics. Faithfulness to God's holy standard. 4. Sanctions. Rewarding and punishing according to obedience. 5. Continuity. A bond created and maintained by the loyalty to the covenant. Let's see how this covenantal grid forms a world and life view for education. I will compare and contrast it with the worldview of humanism. I've used the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2 because they are the Bible of public education. What the Manifesto says in one form, the textbooks have attempted to flesh out in another. Transcendence. I've already said this means rising above. But... In what sense? God rises above the creation in that he is the creator, distinct in his being from man. The Bible begins, quote, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, end quote, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But before this event there was nothing. So God and the rest of creation are different in their very essence. So what? At the heart of all pagan thought is the evolutionary notion that man is becoming God, whether we are speaking of the Greeks, Mormons, Marxists, or the Humanist Manifesto 1. In fact, the Humanist Manifesto 1 begins in Affirmation 1, quote, Religious humanist regards the universe as self-existing and not created, end quote. Who is God, according to this system of thinking? Man. This is the heart and soul of evolutionary thought. Evolution is the heart and soul of humanistic education. Everywhere a student turns, he reads some comment that is designed to support a basic evolutionary view of life. Humanist textbooks are laced with comments such as, quote, Infants can grasp an object such as a finger so strongly that they can be lifted into the air. We suspect this reflex is left over from an earlier stage in human evolution, when babies had to cling to their ape-like mother's coats, while mothers were climbing or searching for food. End quote. Understanding Psychology, Random House, 1977. Or, quote, Another 1.5 billion years passed, then the era of many-celled plants and animals began. By the time another half billion years had gone by, the seas were teeming with worms, jellyfish, sponges and corals. Between 5 and 2 million years ago, the appearance of human beings. End quote. Land and People, A World Geography, Scott Freeman, 1982. It stands to reason that every subject is going to touch on the question of origins. Humanists know that a person's view of creation determines his whole outlook so should Christians. Transcendence is either placed in God or man. When transcendence is viewed in some other location than God, man becomes God in his own eyes. This is why biblical transcendence is point one in a Christian worldview. Hierarchy After transcendence comes the whole question of authority. Christianity says that God establishes a hierarchy of authority that reflects his transcendence. These earthly leaders all represent him, the father in the home, the elder, 
bishop or pastor in the church, and the magistrate in the state. Humanism also recognizes the importance of this issue. The Humanist Manifesto 2, Principle 1 says, quote, Too often traditional faiths encourage dependence rather than independence, obedience rather than affirmation, fear rather than courage. End quote. Principle 5 also states, quote, We believe in maximum individual autonomy consonant with social responsibility. The possibilities of individual freedom of choice exist in human life and should be increased. End quote. Public school textbooks follow this same line of thinking in numerous examples. A 1982 homemaking text says, quote, During early adolescence, the fight for personal independence usually begins with words. Actions follow later. When teens grow big and strong enough, conflict with parents may flare up with fights that include yelling and hitting. End quote. Me, understanding myself and others, Bennett, 1982. A basal reader commonly used in public schools expresses a rebellious view of authority. Quote, Think of a situation that would probably result in a different opinion between your parents and yourself. End quote. Rebels. Ginn & Co. 1969. An English text says, quote, From whom might you resent getting some unasked for advice about how to dress, how to wear makeup, or how to behave? Why? From some teachers, from old-fashioned parents, from bossy older brothers and sisters, end quote. Macmillan, Gateway English, 1970. Authority is necessary to a proper Christian education and view. The school, acting as a surrogate parent, should reflect God's chain of command at every point. When the student responds obediently to the instructor, he should understand that he is responding to God's representative, hired by his parents. To rebel is to revolt against God. Humanism places final authority in self. Man is believed to be autonomous and totally unaccountable. His system says, there is no God, so ultimately there is no basis for submission except for brute power, tyranny or anarchy. The person with the biggest stick is the leader. Ethics Christianity teaches that God's law is the basis of all authority and life. There is an absolute standard of right and wrong. It used to be that virtually every child learned these. Why? Children need to learn the ethical boundaries of life. If they don't, then they will never be able to make good decisions. Humanism sets out to destroy the biblical standard. It hates the Ten Commandments so badly that they are not even allowed to be posted on any public building. The Humanist Manifesto too says, quote, We reject all religious, ideological or moral codes that denigrate the individual, suppress freedom, dull intellect, dehumanize personality, end quote. And in public school textbooks, there are such examples as the following from a grade 3 textbook discussing, quote, talking about your own ideas. It says, quote, Most people think that cheating is wrong, even if it only even if it is only to get a penny, which is what Shari did. 
Do you think there is ever a time when it might be right? End quote. Communicating the Health English series, 1973. The last example typifies the way humanist education is always trying to get the student to question Christian values. Christian education, on the other hand, provides a clear-cut system of ethics, biblical law. What is the best environment for the student? One where God's standard is constantly being challenged or one where it is being upheld? In a day when anything but a Christian morality is present in our society, the ethical aspect of a Christian worldview is a major priority. Sanctions A Christian world and life view says there are consequences to any act. Obedience is rewarded with blessing and disobedience is punished. There is an ethical relationship between cause and effect. Moses says, quote, So keep the words of this covenant to do them that you may prosper in all that you do. End quote. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 9. Again, this is one of the five most important things a person must learn in life. Humanism, however, teaches that there are no lasting consequences to immorality, not even a hell where people are eternally punished. The Humanist Manifesto 2, Principle 3 says, quote, We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. End quote. Sanction. There's that word again. One psychology text says, quote, If a situation pressures a person to act in a certain way, then the person is not likely to be judged as the cause of the act. End quote. Experiencing psychology, Science Research Associates, 1978. No judgment? Boy, are these humanistic authors in for a big surprise when they die. The Bible emphatically teaches that there are eternal consequences. Hebrews says, quote, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. End quote. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. See the connection the Bible makes? If there is no judgment, then there is no real payment for sin, no Christ. That's what's at stake with the humanistic worldview. Christians believe that because their worldview includes real sanctions, there is a need for real deliverance, salvation. Quote, no eternal sanctions, no salvation, no eternal sanctions, no need for the cross. End quote. Continuity. The final point in the covenantal worldview speaks to everything, from who lives and dies to inheritance. Continuity is the bond between people and everything. Scripture says the bond that holds life together is the covenant. Break it and death results, destroying the bond and incurring the judgment of God. Let's take as an example, God says, God says, quote, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man, end quote. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. If a man breaks another's continuity with life by murdering him, then he has to die, losing his bond with the living. Humanism tries to put continuity someplace other than faithfulness to God's word. Using the same example of death, the Humanist Manifesto 2, Principle 2 says, quote, Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory 
and harmful. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. We continue to live in our progeny and in the way our lives have influenced others in our culture, end quote. Then, in a story out of public school, then, in a story out of a public school grade 5 social studies text, humanism views continuity with life and death much differently from Holy Scripture. In a tale about an Eskimo, we read, quote, He was to save his own life by eating his wife. At first, he only cut small pieces from her clothing and ate them. She ran for her life, and then it was as if Tunek saw her only as a quarry that was about to escape him. He ran after her and stabbed her to death. After that, he lived on her, and he collected her bones in a heap. End quote. Man, A Course of Study, 1970. See the difference? Continuity with life is based on the Word of God in Christianity, but in pagan religions that communicate the message of humanism, like the horrible story above, continuity with life is according to disobedience. The one who breaks God's law and murders another is the one who lives. So, the world and life view of the Bible is covenantal. The final point of God's system is continuity. Christianity teaches that the true heirs of life will be Christians. The ones who get disinherited are the unbelievers. Summary. In this chapter, I ventured into the heart of Christian education, the proper world and life view. Whose worldview? God's or man's? One, I began with a discussion of the presumed failure of the family to educate. The state has sold the family a bill of goods. In compulsory education laws, the state has convinced parents that it has the right to write these. But there could be no compulsory education laws if there weren't parents who already believed in educating their children. But the key here is that the one who writes compulsory education laws has the right to define education. 2. I use the Ohio versus Wisner court case to show that the power to define is the power to determine what world and life view will be taught. 3. The bottom line of being able to teach a certain worldview is the moral environment around the child. 4. I use the covenantal model to outline the proper world and life view. Along the way, I try to use examples from public school textbooks to show that the humanistic worldview is diametrically opposed to Christianity. But someone might raise the question, quote, if there is no state compulsory education, then where's the guarantee of literacy? End quote. In other words, quote, won't educational level drop if the state gets out of education? End quote. And, quote, if the state is pulled away from the family in this area, won't the family be defenceless in our society? End quote. These are legitimate questions. In the next chapter, we want to answer the question, quote, who protects the family? End quote. The state? The church? Or is the family left to fend for itself? Let's see in the following pages.